Hi, and welcome back to the Wordsmith Podcast. I am Josh Bennett, the lead pastor here at Awaken Church, joined by your boy, Pastor Shane, the executive pastor. Pastor Matthew Grady Calhoun, worship pastor here at Awaken Church. Hey, hey. And the young boy, Connor Boyhawk. Yo, yo, yo. Here we are on the eve of SEC college football season. I know when you guys listen to this, you'll have already been neck deep into that, but we're excited two days away from the Georgia Bulldogs taking on the Arkansas Razorbacks to kick off 2020 season. I didn't know if it was ever going to get here, but it is here, so I'm pretty stoked about that. You guys got any big plans for the game this weekend? Nah, not any big plans, but uh, I think Matt's going to come to the house and we're going to watch the game and pig out, probably uh, be a cheat day. Uh, You know, I've been trying to watch what I eat lately, but I won't be watching it that day. Me and some buddies are going to get some wings and chill out. I'm going to try to stay for the entirety of the game. It comes down to how much aggravating Pastor Shane is to me. Yeah, well, I'd say you make it so about you're halfway you're through the first quarter. So you're probably not going to make it for the <laughs> yeah, whole game. Halfway no, probably not, not the whole game. Probably not. No. Uh, our house will be quite entertaining. Our boys will be geared up and ready to go. And Harper's kind of getting to where she likes to watch a little bit of sports and stuff too. So it should be fun around the Bennett household. But we're definitely excited for college football season. Today we're diving back into the book of Philippians into chapter two, which really gets into the meat of this book and um, some great content today. Connor, would you go ahead and kick us off by reading verses one through 18? If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so not so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God, who are faultless and crooked and perverted generation. Among you shine like stars in the world, by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. Even then, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Okay, so here Paul jumps out of the gate with, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection of mercy. And, you know, if for us almost means like, okay, is if, if there is in a sense of there may or may not be. But really when you dive into the language here, it was more like since. Paul was encouraging them because of these things. So let's talk a few minutes about these things that 
Paul is kind of using to provoke them towards this call to unity that, that he's striving towards. Yeah, it's a rhetorical device. That's why he's saying the if there. It's building towards the reveal there of verse 2. So look at these individually. First, if there's any encouragement in Christ. Well, of course, there's a great deal of encouragement in Christ, that we are found in Christ. His life is ours. Uh, His sacrificial death is ours, and we now enjoy his life and those benefits. If there's any consultation of love, love itself is uh, consoling. It encourages us. It comforts us. Uh, If any fellowship with the Spirit, fellowship is the presence. The Spirit is amongst us. He is moving amongst His church. He is encouraging us. He is empowering us to work and to live lives marked by love and holiness. And then affection, another way of saying that is brotherly love. That one of the marks of the Spirit, one of the marks of the church is, as we kind of talked about in episode three, brotherly love. Love for one another. Care for one another. So Paul's saying, since we have these things, these things are certainties, they're there, they're taking place, then he calls us in the next verse to unity. And he kind of lays out for us what unity looks like. So what, what is Paul's definition of unity there in verse 2? Yeah, so verse 2 says, make my joy complete. He's encouraging them. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And there's some argument there uh, with the phrases in the Greek text about whether or not thinking the same way or having the same love should come first. We're not really qualified to get too deep into that. But I think it's interesting the point that we often like to talk about the mind and the heart as if there's these two things that are always warring. They're always fighting against one another. And sure, from time to time they are. But really, in the Christian life, they should be, as we grow, as we mature, working together. They both are important. Both how we think, having the same mind, and also having the same affection, the same desires, the same goal that we are trying to reach out toward, that we're trying to live towards. Yeah, I think many times unity, when I, when I think about unity, when I read and study about unity, and I think my message this uh, Sunday is actually on a big part of it, on unity, is I, I know it starts as, as a thought. It, it starts as a concept. But the only way you know that unity exists is it's got to be tangible. It's got to be something that you see, even if it's uh, unity in thought. I mean, you don't know that you're united in thought unless you actually talk. So that even in and of itself is an action. So you have to, I actually have to tell you my beliefs, maybe my doctrine, so that if you disagree or agree with me, we would be in unity or disunity on even that. So I think that many times whenever we think of, of unity, it's not just something that you think or a feeling that you have is actually manifested somewhere in your life or in the in the corporate body of Christ. John Calvin, who was a famous Christian, he commented a lot on Scripture and teach and preach from it. He says, referring to this verse, it implies that they must accommodate themselves to each other. Hence, the beginning of the love is harmony of views, but that is not sufficient unless men's hearts are at the same time joined together in mutual affection. So it is having the same, not all the same thoughts, but many of the same thoughts, but also the mutual affection between these brothers and sisters that drives this unity. Absolutely. So Paul's call here to unity is that the church would be thinking along the same lines, loving in the same way, working towards the same purpose. And, you know, we take pieces of Scripture from other places, and we know like Paul's call in many of his letters to the church was that they be thinking on things that are above, not on things of this world. And so his call for unity is that the church be thinking about things that are above and that they be loving as Christ has called us to love and intent on one purpose. He's laid that out for us in 
chapter 1 that we've discussed in great detail, and that's the gospel would be going out, that it would be being preached and proclaimed and being shared. And so a church that is unified is in those things. Their, their mind is on the things that are above. Their heart is intent on loving the way Christ has called us to love. And they're motivated and dedicated to the purpose of sharing the gospel. So I think that's really at the core of what every church's unity should be about. There's got to be an abundance of grace there, too. I oh, think absolutely. To have unity, because, I mean, you know, we're going to disagree on things. And I think sure. if we're able to show one another grace in abundance, because I know people have to show me grace from a lot of the time. But I have to do the same thing. And I think it's kind of like a bank account. You know, you, you put grace in, you take grace out. You know, if, you, if you're always absorbing everybody's grace, but you never show anyone grace, I think that's when unity becomes bankrupt uh, many times in a relationship or even in a corporate body. I think unity, too, has to come back to we're all, we're all in the same mission. We're all on, you know, to glorify Christ, you know, and we're all one body. So to be on one mission is, 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 is unity. Absolutely, at the core of it. And then in verse 3, to me, this is kind of where the rest of the chapter gets unlocked. Paul, you know, it's this call for unity, and then he gives us the key to unity in verses 3 and 4. And then he elaborates on that throughout the rest of the chapter. So verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And so I think at this very heart of unity, Paul says it requires humility. Like that's the key that allows unity to exist is not, is not arrogance, but humility and servanthood. And so what do you think about this call to humility and how that ties into his call to unity? Well, first of all, I think it's very countercultural to to speak, like, even in their day, I think it probably was um, very countercultural because, I mean, it, our culture, the prevailing thought is um, you got to take care of number one. You know, you got to look out for number one. And then if you have enough left over, you can look out for other people, but you got to take care of yourself first because nobody else is going to. And that's kind of the prevailing philosophy uh, in American culture. But this this is very, like I said, countercultural in, in the thought of it to I got to look out for others before I look out for myself. And and here's the thing. Whenever we see that in other people, it's very admirable. Like, like we're like, man, I wish I was more like that. But mm-hmm. uh, many times we don't, um, we don't try to replicate that a lot of times in our own life, even though we see it as very admirable in other people's lives. And it's, it's difficult to maintain for an extended period of time sure. because our natural instincts – our natural position is to look out for me. How am I feeling? How am I thinking? What do I want? During the the COVID pandemic, pretty early on, we had one of our church members. Her and her family was exposed to COVID. So uh, in kind of a hurry, I, I offered to go and get her uh, some supplies, some groceries, because they were going to self-quarantine in their home for at least a couple of days. I offered and, and, and more than gladly went to Walmart. I, I picked up some of the things. I, I discovered baby formula is wildly expensive for the single people who, who may stumble right. upon this. Amen. But I got that, and I got some other things, and I took them and dropped them off the house. And I remember leaving there. I remember there being such a high. I remember feeling great. And I remember thinking to myself, why don't I, why don't I do this more? Why, don't, why am I not always this way? 
And then it was probably like 10 or 15 minutes later, I'm back to thinking just about myself. <laughs> yeah. So it's hard. It's hard to put the entrance of others before yourself. It's hard to do it, even though we recognize it's actually better yeah. and it feels great. Sure. And it actually builds unity faster than anything else. Because if I'm looking out for Shane and Shane's looking out for me, by the very nature, that draws us closer together. And same thing in marriages. You know, one of the things that happens when marriages start struggling is the husband starts worrying about himself and the wife starts worrying about herself and usually the rest of the family and they're kind of pulling away. But if the husband is concerned with meeting the needs of the wife and the wife is concerned with meeting the needs of the husband, that draws them together because they're by nature moving towards each other emotionally and spiritually and all those things. And the same thing's true in the church, that as we seek out humility, then we're being drawn in to unity. But it is. It's very difficult to live out. And I think it's difficult to live out because we're selfish people. Sure. We're terribly selfish people. And the flesh is always pulling at us. And, you know, what you were describing, Pastor Matt, is that. It's the war of the spirit and the flesh. Mm-hmm. And nobody has to teach you to be that way. No. No. I mean, you just you. that's what you're always going to, you know, revert to. That's why he's yeah. actually um, telling you to. That's why many of the commands, I think, in Scripture, and we see these commands here, but I think many times when we see commands throughout the New Testament, these commands were given because that's not natural to you. So you have to be commanded um, that, look, you need to think this way. You need to be this way. What's every two-year-old's favorite word? No. Mine. Mine. No, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no and mine go in close second. But, I mean, my two-year-old runs around the house all the time. Mine. My, even mm-hmm. if it's not hers. You know, yeah. it can be mine or <laughs> be my wife's or my boy's. And she, no, that's mine. Yeah. And um, you're right. Nobody teaches us that. It's at the very, very core of our heart. So this next few verses to me is just, it's one of those gold mines of Scripture. And of course, all of Scripture is amazing. But this to me is one I go back to so often because Paul is calling us to have the same attitude the CSB uses. Um, Some translations say have the same mind as Christ Jesus. But he's calling us to a higher place in our humility to be like Christ, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God or something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And these verses take us down this almost spiral action of humility that we find Christ in verse 5 at the highest place of all creation, or all he's at the right hand of the Father, and it says that he is equal with God. And we understand that from the Trinity. God the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit um, exist in this beautiful, harmonious relationship. But he is existing in the form of God, and he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Now, several different translations um, translate this verse different ways, and this is one of those verses that has... A little bit of debate exactly what it means, but I think it's one of those where you end up at the same place no matter what. Some say consider equality with God as something to be grasped um, or something to be exploited. What do you guys think about that verse? I like when it's translated grasp better because it's, it's when you're talking about being equal with God. It's, he didn't have to reach up to try to be equal with God. He was God, so it's not something he had to grasp after. Is something that, you know, he was. Uh, so I, I like that translation. 
if I had a better understanding of the English language, maybe some other words would fit in there just as well, though. Yeah, well, and I think the, the trouble with this one is not the English language, it's the Greek language. I had read through uh, some of Dr. Piccarelli's notes on this, and he said there's basically four different prevailing thoughts, and one of those is exactly what you're saying. There was nothing about being equal to God that he needed. Like, there was nothing to be grasped after. He was completely equal to God. Some translate the, this word here to mean exploited. In other words, even though he was equal to God, he chose to, to not exploit that, but instead to act in the exact opposite of exploitation by becoming a servant, by expressing humility. All of these different interpretations, they, they lead you to the same place, that Christ was equal to God, yet he chose to give that up. Yeah, in the introductory episode of our podcast, I mentioned briefly the idea that this section, verses 5 through 11, is a poem. Like, if you have your physical Bible in front of you, which I know for many of our listeners won't be the case, but if you have a physical Bible in front of you, or even the Bible, a lot of Bible apps will have this, this whole section is bracketed off from the rest of the text. And the reason is, is because uh, scholars are in agreement that Paul here is quoting from something. Maybe it's an early hymn, maybe it's an early creed, maybe it's a poem, but he's quoting from something, this whole section. And it's really interesting to see how that works out, that Paul would bring in things that the church there would understand, right? Their own songs, their own hymns, their own early developments of doctrine, and would refer back to that in his lessons. And this section really grounds the entire rest of the book. You can make an argument, uh, uh, Alan Patton, I think his name is, at the Bible Project argues that, that this whole section, uh, verses uh, 5 through 11, really grounds everything else that Paul's going to talk about in the whole book. And it's just really interesting to read up more about that. We don't go too deep into chiastic poems is what they're called. It's an ancient Hebrew literature thing, which we're not really qualified to talk about too much. But it's interesting to see how this one section, it can seem like he's just kind of rambling, talking about something. He's moving on, but he's really referring from something they already understand. They're already being teaching to. And Paul is just pointing them back to what they already know. And so much of the Christian life, so much of Christian teaching, so much of day-to-day life in Christ is just pointing back to what we already know pointing back to what we already understand and finding it, trusting in it more and more. And each part of this poem or or this quotation that Paul uses builds upon the other. So the first step is that Christ being equal to God emptied himself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the amazing thing to me about this passage is every step in and of itself is an amazing step of humility for Christ. But when you Mm -hmm. compile them together and see the progression, it becomes even deeper. So, in other words, if Christ had just left the Father and come to earth, but he didn't come as a servant, he didn't come to die, he didn't come to die on a cross, he just come as a, to be a human, but maybe he was the wealthiest human that ever lived, or he was an icon, that would have still been a step of humility for Jesus. And so, the beginning of this is letting us know, even by leaving God the Father, Jesus stepped down and took a step of humility. And then he leads us a little deeper. You know, from an apologetics point of view, um, I've always found it fascinating when it talks about that he became obedient because it is talking about him being in the flesh, being here in bodily form, that he became obedient even to the point of death. You can never be more human than you are when you die because, I mean, you know, 10 out of 10 people die. And so, and and I think even when it talks about death on a cross, he's placing... The death of Christ, well, in prophecy, but also in in history, because I mean, it was a very unique way 
of of dying, and it is a very historical way of dying, dying, you know, on the cross through crucifixion. And so from an, uh, in a point of view of apologetics, he, he's placing that in there that, that um, and maybe it was to combat Gnostic teachings of the time, like, because they didn't believe that Christ died a, a bodily death. But he said, no, he was human, even to the point that he died yep. on a cross. And so, you know, he leaves this, you're right. I mean, it, it identifies his humanity. And, you know, he goes from being equal to God, emptying himself, and then he takes on the form of a servant. So here's another step of humility from Christ. As he comes, he takes on the form of a servant. And just to even think about that, this idea that the God of the universe came to earth, but then came as a servant. And nothing maybe signifies that even or better or more than in John when he kneels down to wash the disciples' feet. And it shows the great deal of his servanthood. And, and it, everything about Jesus' life was built around this idea that he came to serve. And then it moves in to the point that he became, and he became as a man, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So here again, another step. Jesus left God. He became a person. He became a servant type of person. And then he became obedient to death. And so it's almost as if Jesus is trying to see how humble can I get? You know, how many steps of humility can I take here? And to even understand what that would mean, you know, Pastor Shane's... Tying that in so well that for him to be a for him to die expressed the greatest amount of humanity that he could because the immortal became mortal but he didn't stop there he went on beyond death to die one of the most humiliating deaths that you could die which was the death on the cross and the other uh, aspect of this that points to humility is he did this for us right he didn't. He wasn't obligated to do any of this. He wasn't doing it just for the sake of doing it. He took our place. He took what we deserve, what we apart from him would have to experience. He gladly steps in the way for us. He fills the gap, so to speak, so that we don't have to know that pain, know that separation, know that suffering. Yeah, I heard a very well-known pastor one time. Uh, I was listening to his uh, podcast, but he worded it in such a way. It really resonated with me. I don't, I don't know how if it would resonate with you guys, but he said— to, to reword that, not so much that Christ died for us, but Christ died as us. Um, he, he died in our place. And that really resonated with me on a, on a little deeper level there. Sure. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously said, Christ didn't die so much for all men as he died for each man. Which really, oh, yeah. again, goes to stuff. that, that singularity yeah. aspect of it. Yeah. And, you know, Paul doesn't say it here, but it just adds another step of humility that he died, he died on a cross, but he also became sin. And he became your sin, and he became my sin. To even understand what it means for the God of this universe to become sin. I, I don't think we can grasp that. I, I really don't. And But what Paul's point is here, and it drives us and drives the church to uh, Philippi to unity, is that if Christ can express that much humility, we should follow in that example. Have this same attitude, adopt this same mindset of Christ Jesus who showed us the greatest example of humility that can be shown. Great time for a break. We'll be back in just a minute with our cultural deep dive.
Okay, it's time for our cultural deep dive, and our cultural deep dive each week is a segment of the podcast where we dive in to something historical or culturally relevant at the time. And so today we thought no better time than to dive in to historical crucifixion. Uh, Normally when we think of the word crucifixion, we automatically think of Jesus, but this was a form of death that was prevalent in this time period, so I think it would be great for us to spend some time talking about what it was, where it originated, what it looked like, and maybe that'll give us some more insight to what Jesus experienced on the cross. I think that it originated with the Assyrian Empire in a broad sense uh, for crucifixion because um, I think what made Roman crucifixion unique is they're the first ones to use like a cross to actually crucify the Assyrians and um, other empires um, did use crucifixion as a type of punishment, but theirs was more like they would nail them, tie them to a tree. Uh, and usually uh, when they did it, like especially the Assyrians, whenever they did it, they didn't, they didn't nail your feet. They nailed your, your wrists or your hands. I think, you know, everything from your fingertip to your elbow was considered a, a hand um, or a forearm, but that's what they would nail. And maybe you would suffocate quicker but the they say that the the Roman Empire kind of perfected it, and I think part of that was because they're the first ones to actually build a cross, and it wasn't just one type of cross. There were several different types of cross, but they were all called a cross, um, and they built that. That's what they crucified you with. Yeah, some of the crosses look more like a capital T. Um, yeah. You know, we always think of like a little T, which you know the typical cross. Some of them were more like a capital T. Some of them were, like you're saying, just a, a pole. Yeah. Um, sometimes the hands were tied. Sometimes the hands were nailed. Sometimes the feet were nailed. Sometimes the feet were tied. I mean, it was just a, a wide variety. But like you said, it began with the Assyrians there in 6th century B.C. Alexander the Great, here comes this historical figure coming back into our podcast again. But he was known to have brought it from Persia into um, the Mediterranean countries and brought it into there around the 4th century B.C., and it was virtually never used in Greece, pre-Hellenistic, but then the Romans per- began to perfect it, as you said, and they did it for 500 years. It was a common term of death for about 500 years until it was outlawed by Constantine in the 4th century. Yeah, was Constantine the first, maybe, or second? Was it first or first. second? First. First, yeah. yeah. 4th century. And I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think if you were a Roman citizen, because it was a... The, Crucifixion was a, not only was it brutal physically, but it was also meant to shame the person. And so I believe if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. Maybe under certain circumstances you could, um, but under most circumstances, if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. I was looking through the process of when people were crucified um, during the Roman uh, time period. And uh, there are some steps of going on through this. And it says, The condemned man, um, after being whipped or scourged, you know, they dragged the crossbeam of the cross to the place where they were going to be punished, um, where the upright shaft was already fixed in the ground. They were stripped of their clothing, either when they were being scourged or whipped. They would be bound out fast, um, outstretched arms to the crossbeam, and nailed firmly to through the wrist, like Pastor Shane was talking about. And, you know, and it says the cross beam was raised high about 12 feet off the ground. 
you know, and so they were nailed to through their feet and through their hands, and then they were held upright. And there would usually not be a place where their feet could, like, hold their weight up. So it would cause them to, you know, almost uh, their weight to pull them down to make them suffocate. And the purpose behind crucifixion was that to dissuade the witnesses from doing the same thing. Like, that was the purpose of this type of death. If you see somebody getting crucified for stealing something or for claiming to be God or whatever— they wanted you to look and go, yeah, I don't want to experience that. And so because of that, they would make it as humiliating and as painful and as visible. ridiculing, as visible as they could. I mean, you were naked. We don't see pictures of Jesus naked because that would seem highly inappropriate. But when Jesus died on the cross, he was naked. You know, mm-hmm. They would pour salt in wounds. They would allow birds. Sometimes they would leave the people up there, no proper burial, just to be eaten by birds when they were dead. I mean, it it was just an amazingly torturous way to die. Like, it was just awful. Yeah, I read it in, in one source. I, I didn't read it in many sources, so I don't know how grounded it is, but they said that they did, on, on occasion, they would smear honey on the face or the head of the person being crucified so that it would add to the torment because the the bugs and the birds and everything would just you know eat at them for days, um, which is normally how long I think it took for them to die. Yeah, anywhere from six hours to four days. And to make this worse, the cross was kind of the last step. You had been scourged, you had been beaten, you had to carry. You know, a lot of times we think of Jesus carrying his cross up the hill as him carrying the whole cross. Typically, it was just the cross beam, but still, that's about a hundred pounds. I mean, I don't know. I've drug a 100-pound deer through the woods. I kind of know what that would feel like, but I can't imagine carrying a 100-pound crossbeam, you know, after having been physically beaten and um, experienced the torture that Jesus had already, both emotionally, spiritually, physically, all of those things combined. And to top it off, while you're dying, you're being ridiculed and mocked by the entire city that's out to kind of watch this thing. So and historically, crucifixion was a cruel punishment. It was a cruel death. That's our cultural deep dive for this week. We'll be back in just a second to continue diving into Philippians chapter 2. Here we are back with Philippians chapter 2. And so Paul has just laid out for us this beautiful example of humility. And then to carry out the second part of this poem, he says, For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. For this reason is referring to the humility that Christ showed here and through his life, through his death. And so what does this teach us or show us about how God views humility? Well, much as he is honoring the humility and the obedience of his son, likewise, all who are humble, all who are obedient to his calling will also be exalted and honored when the fullness of time comes. I was thinking of uh, Isaiah 40, I think it is, where Isaiah talks about the valley will be lifted up and the mountain will be made low. The time will come, the, the first will be last, the last will be first. He will honor those who gave of their own selves gave of their own lives, their own time, their own effort, their own money, he will honor those and bring their giving at that point, and he will honor it like 10 to 100 to 100 million times more than what they were willing to give in those moments. 
It also reminded me of First Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. Paul is writing to the church there in Thessalonica, and he encourages them to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly for outsiders and be dependent on no one. We can strive for that because God, through Christ, has taken care of the extraordinary. So we can commit our lives all the more to the ordinary, to the humble, to the lowly. The scriptures teach us these two polar principles. And it's basically this. If you are prideful, God will humble you. Yes. And if you are humble, God will exalt you. And so we see that right here beautifully. Christ is exalted because of his humility and ultimately because he left the right hand of the Father. He stepped down, became a servant, died, died on the cross. Because of that humility, every knee will bow and will confess that he is Lord. And God will exalt this humility. And again, I think Paul's using that as an encouragement. If you are humble... God will exalt that humility. And if we try to exalt ourselves, which we're good at doing, mm-hmm. that fleshly nature, God will find a way to humble us. And as Paul says to the church at Corinth, pride comes before the fall. He transitions here um, a little bit. He says, therefore, and of course, anytime there's a therefore, you got to know what it's there for. And that's referring back to this humility and this call to unity that's there. Um, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. So Paul's saying, hey, I know you're doing a great job. Continue to do this, even when I'm not there to watch over you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does it mean to work out your salvation? He's not talking about positional salvation. He's not saying that you have to earn your salvation. You have to earn your justification because you can't do that to begin with. That's, that would contradict everything he's already talked about, both in this letter and in other letters. As Pastor Josh referenced, there's a therefore there at the beginning of verse 12, but there's also a for in verse 13. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So he's mostly talking about sanctification here. He's talking about you need to grow into what you already are. Sanctification is becoming what you already are in Christ. So it's important to understand he's not talking about justification. He's not talking about earning righteousness. We can only be righteous through the gift of Christ. So that's the kind of foundation we have to set to then build on top of that. And I think he also is talking about during his absence to continue to work, you know, together. Sure. As for unity, you know, to continue. And I think the very nature of what he's saying here is to work out what Christ has worked in, Mm -hmm. to allow what Christ has done in your life to work itself out through the fruits of your life, through the fruits of your labor, through your actions. But I just wanted to address that because at first you really like, it sounds like work to be saved, but that's not what it means at all. Like you said, I mean, it it means to to live out what Christ has done inside your heart and inside your life. And it's called a sanctification that Pastor Matt said. But he does make a point here to say, look, it's God that does the work. And let's see, I want to quote him exactly. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. And um, it is Christ who does the work, or it is God who does the work in our lives and draws us closer to him and stirs us, provokes us to good works. And then in verse 14, he says, Do everything without grumbling and arguing. We are so good at that. It's amazing to me that here's the first century church having issues with grumbling and arguing. And have you guys ever known churches to have issues grumbling and arguing? Oh, sure, sure. I was preaching at a church in eastern Kentucky when I was in college, and the church had been burnt down. And they were had like a tent outside, you know, the old tent revival type setup. Sure. And so I preached, and I preached this passage. 
and I was preaching, you know, do everything without grumbling, arguing and grumbling and all these things. And I made the statement, you know, I've heard of churches splitting over the color of the carpet. You know, and that's kind of one of those things you hear it and you think, okay, that's a hyperbole. Sure. Right? Like, surely a church would not split over the color of the carpet. But it is very real. Trust me. Uh, I get to the back and I, you know, after the preach, went to kind of the entryway of the tent and the pastor was up kind of doing a closing deal to the service and this deacon come up and I had a suit and tie on and he grabbed me by my tie and my shirt and he said, I don't care what that preacher told you. You shouldn't have said that. And I thought, what is he, what is going on? So I asked the preacher about it at lunch and because their church had been burnt down, there was part of the church, I guess it was say half, half of the church that wanted to build the church back exactly like it was. And the other half wanted to renovate and change colors and kind of modernize the church. And there was a literal split in the church about the color of the carpet and the color of the walls and the color of the pews and all these things. And so he thought the pastor had put me up to say that. But in all reality, I thought it was just a hyperbole. But Paul is saying, look, if you're grumbling and arguing about everything, you can't have unity. You know, and, and a lot of that comes with humility as well. And and he dives into this. It, it kind of gives us the reason here. He said, so that you may be blameless and pure Children of God who are faultless in a crooked generation. And when the church does argue and bicker and fight and split over ridiculous issues, it becomes a poor testimony of the gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm sure we have all heard people before that's like, well, I don't want to go to church because they got in this fight or I've heard this story or those kind of things. I mean, so how does this call to not argue and grumble lead us into more unity and help us to be better representations of the purpose that Paul's called us to, which is to share the gospel. Practically, the less you're grumbling and complaining and arguing, the more unity you're going to have in the body. Kind of goes almost without saying, you know, that that's, that's going to be one of the effects of uh, abstaining from those sort of things, which is probably why he finishes that, that line out that uh, you'll shine like stars in the world you know you'll really stand out um, because that's that's what comes natural to us to grumble and complain and so he's saying you know you need to really refrain from that and and whenever we see like big arguments very seldom if ever is it over a serious like theological matter like you know we we really differ on you know something that's really doctrinal in the bible it's usually maybe a a, a preference or methodology or something uh, along those lines is that that's what we normally see people arguing over. The thing is, if, if somebody who isn't saved comes into a church or somebody who's just not a believer, they're not a follower of Christ, they come into a church and they see you arguing over trivial things, automatically would make me think, man, what's going to happen when it's a real, you know, something real at the core? Um, it's just going to rip everything apart. I mean, if we're already going to argue over you know, the color of the carpets, which I thought was a hyperbole too, but apparently it is a real life uh, situation. And it really, it becomes this bookends for Paul. Paul says, look, be unified, which means to be working towards the same purpose, having the same mind, same love, all those things, so that you can share the gospel. He lays out this call, be be humble to have unity. And then he kind of bookends it with, we need to be unified because that's how we share the gospel. That's how the gospel has the most effect. Most people are receptive to it because you shine and stand out when you are unified. It's easy for people to argue. You know, me and Pastor Shane can bring up any topic in the world and start an argument and 
a few minutes if we want to. It's easy to do that. Sure. It's hard to be unified. Hmm. It takes work. It takes effort. But when the world sees that, it draws them to Christ instead of repels them away from Christ. So what are your takeaways for this first part of chapter 2? Unity. Coming together as a body of Christ. Um, and how desperate we need that in this day and age is uh, unity. And I think it's probably, and I mean, that would be mine too, but I think that it's probably deeper than just being agreeable. Because usually when we think of unity, we, we think of that. They're, they're just agreeable, you know. They, but you can have unity and, like, have a lot of disagreements within that mm-hmm. unity. But the, the thing about it, I think unity is one of those things that whenever you see it, you, like you, you know what it is. You're like, man, that they're unified in the gospel. You know, you you can see it. It's something that's otherworldly. Um, it's something that um, would make you hunger and thirst after it. You know, I think it's very attractive. But uh, I think we have to understand unity in a in a biblical sense, not just a, a sense of just being agreeable, but like we're moving in the same direction. Yeah, you often hear people say there's a difference between unity and uniformity. Uniformity is everybody is of the sameness, like they all are the same. The church has never been the same. The church has always been a place where you find great diversity, both uh, ethnically, financially, uh, life experience. We are a diverse church because we serve and follow a diverse God. He is one, but he is also existing in three different persons, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. So unity is not opposed to diversity or it's not opposed to uh, disagreements from time to time. It is what you do in spite of that. What you do as you as you love and bear with one another despite these disagreements, despite our differences. And I think it is best seen with the progress and the work that is done. If the four of us went out and said, we're going to build a, a railroad track through the state of Georgia. And we went out, we had a camp, and we sat around all night and sang some kumbaya together and had a good time. But at the end of the thing, we never built any railroad tracks. Sure. That wasn't real unity. That was just getting along. But if we go through and we work together and accomplish the goal of building the railroad track, at the end, we worked in a unified manner to accomplish a great work. And that's what Paul's calling the church to do. Not just get along, but to work together to share the gospel. Because ultimately, that is the mission, to share the gospel, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And unity helps us make that happen. So that's our thoughts on Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. It's been another great week here at The Wordsmith. No matter how you listen to podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spotify, or somewhere else, find us, like us, subscribe, and uh, we'll be here every week giving you more thoughts on the book of Philippians. Philippians.